This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So he was always a really unsettled baby. We had sleep issues. I mean, I remember the first few weeks of him being born. My train of thought was, oh, how am I going to get him back inside? (laughs) It was so nice when he was inside. So I have three kids. Two are on the spectrum. My daughter is now 22. She's the more severe one. And I realised at the start that conventional medicine didn't give me all the answers that I needed. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode, we talk to two healthcare practitioners. One is a natural medicine practitioner and one is a GP. Both have more in common than you would think. They have children with autism spectrum disorder and these children set them on a journey that changed their lives. Brittany Darling is a nutritionist and herbalist based in Sydney. She's a mind ambassador and importantly, a mum. I guess the best place to start is at the beginning when he was born. (laughs) Um, He was always a really unsettled baby. We had sleep issues. I remember the first few weeks of him being born. My train of thought was, oh, how am I going to get him back inside? (laughs) It was so nice when he was inside. He was impossible to settle. We had feeding issues. We found out he had something called F-Pies which is food protein-induced enterocolitis to cow's milk. Um, The initial diagnosis was anaphylaxis to cow's milk, but then subsequently we found a different allergist who was specialising in F-Pies, which was kind of a new emerging thing at the time. Um, So he ended up with the F-Pies diagnosis, Um, but just constant, you know, issues basically. Subsequently, we also found out he has haemophilia B. So I call him my one in a million child because it's kind of he's got all these things, you know, that are considered, you know, rare in a way. So, yeah, it it wasn't an easy start. So I guess fast forward three years, you can imagine at that point still I still pretty much hadn't slept a great deal. My own mental health was not fantastic. It was all a big blur. So you're thinking, wow, motherhood really is hard. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my husband was home with me for the first sort of four weeks, but then he went back to work um, and then it was just me essentially. So my son did have delayed speech, but I didn't realise it. I was too sleep deprived and um, yeah, in a bit of a fog to even realise that him and I had our own language going. (laughs) No one else could understand what we were saying. 
And I didn't venture outside very much or go to play groups and rhyme time and all that kind of stuff because I was too fatigued. And he, the few times we did go to those kind of places, he just didn't integrate particularly well. So if we, I took him to a, you know, a baby gymnastics class, he, he would be unsettled or not wanting to do what the other normal 18-month-olds were doing. So the signs were there initially. I just didn't have the mental capacity to, to pick it up <laughs> and realise it. So it wasn't until his Montessori teacher actually pulled me aside and, set, aside and said, look, I think you should get his hearing checked. I think you should get his vision checked. There's something not quite right. So went and had his vision and his hearing checked, all completely normal. And then they recommended we saw a developmental paediatrician. Can you remember the moment, you know, there are obviously moments in your life that you'll never forget where you were and how you felt. So you went to three paediatricians, but do you remember how you felt when you really accepted that maybe the final diagnosis, the one that you trusted? Can you remember how you were feeling and what those emotions were at the time? I think I had accepted it by the time we got to the first paediatrician. I just wasn't ready. But I I really remember sitting out front of Harris Farm, the grocery store, on the sort of supermarket um, bench that they have out the front holding Leonard, who, you know, would run away and all sorts of things. So I was holding him quite tightly and I was on the phone to my husband just sobbing. I was like, they have said that they think he has autism. And my husband was like, how can he have autism? He doesn't have autism. And at the time, no one had actually explained what autism was. <laughs> so even, you know, the fact that I'm a nutritionist and I've done, you know, a Bachelor of Health Science, I even think that, you know, having that knowledge background, I still didn't really understand what autism was. So we kind of said, oh, no, he doesn't have autism because we really didn't understand what it was. Um, and it wasn't until we got to this third paediatrician, this developmental paediatrician, where she actually explained to us what autism was and linked it back to his behaviours and his symptoms um, and then explained the path forward. That was when we really accepted the diagnosis because there's one thing to tell, you know, parents and families that their child has autism, but unless you explain what the diagnosis means and what you need to do going forward, it's very difficult to come to terms with that. So once we had that, she had a full um, list of things that we need to do, specialists we need to contact, um, speech therapists that she recommends, OT, all of that kind of stuff, and that made it more um, easier to accept, I guess, and, and gave us something to do, something to action. In a different part of the world, a very similar story was unfolding. Dr. Alina Ismail is now an integrative GP in Melbourne. She was, however, living in Malaysia when her first child was born. So I have three kids, two are on the spectrum. My daughter is now 22. She's the more severe one. And I realised at the start that conventional medicine give me all the answers that I needed. Like the problem with conventional medicine is, oh, she's got a speech problem, let's send her to a speechy. Oh, she can't ride a bike, let's do OT. But I knew there was more. I knew there was like other issues that just didn't settle with me. I wanted to go to the root causes. So that's when I actually brought her to see a functional doctor and that's when I saw changes. So when you say you knew there was something more, do you think that was your gut instinct as a parent or your background as a doctor? We never learned this at school. So I graduated from medical school from Flinders Uni in 1995. Maybe autism was mentioned in passing, maybe for the 10th 
like 10 minutes in a psychiatric like lecture. We didn't learn about this. Um, she was my eldest. I had no one to compare to. So maybe that was the other thing because everyone said, ah, oh, she'll start to talk. You know, don't worry. So it was just my gut instinct. I just knew she wasn't right. And I mean, she grew up with normal milestones. And then from around three to four years old, that's when she started to regress. And, and she regressed with her speech and socially or, or, or how? Everything. Yeah, speech, socially. Um, and then the teacher, the kinder said, hey, I think there's something wrong. Maybe you should investigate this more. And I guess it's different. Even if as a health professional you had understood autism, it's one thing to be helping someone else whose child had or has autism to actually living it at, um, yourself, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. The first, as soon as I found out he had autism, I was like, okay, everything I've learned um uh, from my studies, I know that he needs to go gluten-free and dairy-free. So that was step one for me. And I took him gluten-free, dairy-free. And we, we did do that for a couple of years. And then I realized, oh my God, this is so stressful. And it was sort of adding more of a load to our family. And is it really necessary? So I did start to include um, more of those foods into his diet. And interestingly, in the last 12 months, He's been having a normal gluten-containing diet um, and he doesn't react to it in the same way that he used to as a three or four-year-old. So as a three or four-year-old, he would go psychotic after having gluten. I remember we were sitting at a restaurant as a family and he kind of demolished the bread basket one night just because, you know, he was hungry and we kind of just let him do it. So he demolished the bread basket. I kid you not, within five minutes, he was climbing the curtains he was under the table, non-responsive. We could not sort of say, get up, sit at the table. We couldn't even bribe him, say, oh, do you want to watch a video on my phone or do you want your iPad? No, he was totally like almost like an ice addict, non-responsive, hyperactive, just crazy. So that was the moment, I think he would have been three and a half or four, that we were like, well, we really need to be strict with this gluten thing. And I think it's probably quite normal for younger children to have an element of leaky gut, but he doesn't react like that now. So now he could eat that whole bread basket and be completely fine. So I think that, you know, we have done a lot of gut work and I think that's really helped as well. So it goes to show as well that things can change. Like just because one thing works at the beginning doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to be the same in three years' time, two years' time. So as practitioners, I think we need to be, aware that, you know, sometimes we need to change up our protocols as well. Um, so let's go back a little bit and um, talk about now starting to talk about what you did from a nutritional perspective. Obviously, the gluten and dairy were the things that came out first, but what are some other investigations you did in terms of, you know, causation? Because there are many causes, as, as you obviously know, um, but what, did you, what investigative work did you do for your own son? I was very fortunate to work with um, a fantastic paediatrician um, who was very thorough and quite happy to go on this journey with us. So we did a lot of testing. We did all the usual genetic testing, so making sure it's not it wasn't fragile X, um, which is one of one of the common causes of autism. So we ruled that out. It wasn't fragile X. We did all the nutritional bloods, so zinc, vitamin D, <laughs> iron studies, all of that kind of stuff. We tested for heavy metals. We tested for lead, arsenic, mercury. 
Um, they were kind of the things that we did initially. From that, we found out he was iron deficient. He had low zinc. He had quite high mercury because he loved fish. Fish was his favorite food. And in particular, sashimi um, was one of his favorite things. He also had the HLA genotyping for celiac disease, which I had my suspicions because I also carried that um, susceptibility to celiac disease as well. He did have chronic constipation as well, and that was probably the first thing we treated um, was the constipation. And, of course, you know, the, the iron deficiency as well. So that was kind of the the conservative Thing that I did with the pediatrician. And separate to that, I did gut microbiome testing. Um, I did the oat test and I did the DNA nutrigenomics panel as well, which I found the most helpful. <laughs> okay. What, from what perspective? Just from a which prioritizing nutrients um, perspective. So we found out that he um, was heterozygous for the MTHFR mutation. He also had multiple SNPs around B12 as well, as well as SNPs for choline, lots of liver detox SNPs. And also interestingly, the MAL-A, which we know uh, lowers the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain, as well as some dopamine receptor genes as well. So then as you started to correct the iron deficiency, the zinc deficiency, um, as you started to, you know, you took the gluten, the dairy out, um, and as you started to correct those other imbalances, what did you start seeing? And the constipation as well, what did you start seeing in your son? I think the most prominent um, symptom that resolved was sleep issues. Mm -hmm. So there was multiple waking up at night. So every two to three hours he would wake up and that's kind of a pretty common iron deficiency and even B12 deficiency symptom. His appetite improved. So he started to eat more of a variety of foods and I I really boil that down into the zinc. (laughs) I really think the zinc is the key player in that. And then even just improving the constipation increases their appetite. Um, as well. There's nothing worse than putting more food on top of a belly, oh, belly already full of half putrid food. <laughs> and toilet training kind of fell in place as well um, after all of that. So that was that kind of the, the key things that fell into place initially. And then, you know, it's been slow and steady behavioural wise as well. So do you supplement him quite a bit or do you, do you try and do it through food now that you've worked on his gut? So I cycle his supplements. He's pretty resistant to taking too many things. Fair enough, because I went in pretty heavy handed initially. You know, it was fish oil and N-acetylcysteine and B-complex and zinc. And, you know, it's a thousand things um, if you don't prioritize. So, for instance, right now he takes a fish oil and he's taking a B with zinc, magnesium and saffron. So it's a methyl B12. There's actually quite good research Um randomized control trial done on methyl B12 um, and improvement of ASD symptoms. So he's on a good dose of methyl B12, a um, folinic acid, um, vitamin B6 is the P5P form for that neurotransmitter support, uh, the zinc citrate, magnesium, and like I said, saffron. So he's on saffron primarily for anxiety. And also for, um, he also has another diagnosis of ADHD. So there's been quite good research come out recently on saffron and ADHD. And have you found these change, like positive results in your own son? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So at, at this stage, we've managed to dodge stimulant medication for his ADHD diagnosis. That isn't to say that we may not consider it 
later on. As I said, things can change. But for now, we're pretty happy with the way he's tracking along. But I think the key thing that the saffron um, and probably the zinc magnesium B6 has really helped with has been his anxiety. His anxiety at one point was just through the roof. Anxious about going to school. What if this happens? What if that happens? Just almost paralyzing. So that's all resolved. I'd actually say now he's not even an anxious child. He's pretty happy-go-lucky. He's not, he doesn't have many worries. And for Dr. Ismail, it was a similar story. So you saw a functional medicine practitioner once you arrived in Australia? Yep. Yeah. And that's when I saw changes. And mostly it was the diet, what I was feeding her, what she was eating. And so we went gluten-free, dairy-free. And you can see it when like she'd go to school and she'd steal food from her friends and then she'll get all hyper and couldn't concentrate. And I'm like, ah, where is the food? And then... I've got to study this. So that's how I got into functional medicine. So the diet was changed, but what else? What else? Like supplementation, anything else, any gut work that they did? Definitely. So she's an under-methylator. Um, I do a lot of Bill Walsh's work. So we look at the brain's biochemistry. Um, she was high in copper, low in zinc, low in vitamin D. She was an under-methylator, meaning she wasn't donating a lot of methyl groups. 99% of kids on the spectrum usually are under methylators. Or we look at the gut. I've done so many poop tests functionally, send it off overseas. As again, the main thing that always keeps coming back with her tests uh, is even as a small age, she still has issues. She's 22 now. She's quite functional, but she still has issues. And one of her current issues is mold. So we are now grain-free because mold or yeast they, they like sugar, they feed on sugar, which is off carbs um, and, yeah, and grain-free. So that was hard. That wasn't easy to do. You said she's, she's very functional. So what kind of changes did you see um, over the years when you went through all of this work with her? Um, when I say functional, she's, she goes to a centre now. She's not at school. She's not, uh, she's not employed yet. We're working towards it. But she can take care of herself. She can groom herself, she can feed herself, so she can do all that. What did that mean for her at the time when you changed the diet, you did the testings? Before that, she was really in her own world and now she can, we still have problems. Like we, we don't have conversations, but if she needs something, at least now she can ask for it. And so I think that's important and she knows her safety, she goes to her centre every day, she takes a taxi. So she's different from my youngest. My youngest son, he was non-verbal at four. Now he's like, has verbal diarrhoea. Like, so, you know, that's why they call it a spectrum. Everyone's different. So what was the what was the journey with your son then? So, yeah, as I said, non-verbal. He was two when he came here, diagnosed. And now he's very high-functioning. He... Still has issues. We still struggle with puberty, raging hormones. He still has issues with social skills. Gets bullied a lot because he can't read non-verbal cues. Um, April, we're still trying to teach him how to make friends. As healthcare practitioners, we can get bogged down in testing, extensive supplementation, and searching for convoluted causes for conditions. And of course, this is often the case, but in just as many patients, it really is the basics that provide the greatest relief. 
So if you if you have a patient come in um, either without a diagnosis or with a diagnosis of um, a spectrum disorder, where do you start? Depends on how engaged the parents are. Like, do they just want to come for a script, uh, for a, a magic bullet, like a supplement that will just cure everything? Or are they willing to work hard? Like, because if you look at nutrition, that's like one of the easiest things to start off with. Easy to some, like some people it's difficult and it's probably the most cheapest thing to start with. So if like they couldn't afford their tests, they couldn't afford supplements, I would start with the diet. You can do so much with the diet. Can you tell me about the power of diet? So I've got like five set tips. My top two, like if patients come to me and they're not sure, the parents are not sure if this is what they want to do, then I say, okay, go away, think about it, do your research, but at least do a, just do one homework for me. And then I said, at least the top two things, try to eliminate gluten and dairy. So dairy is not lactose. Lactose is sugar in dairy. It's more casein. Casein is the protein in dairy. And casein and gluten, I can talk about how it, it just breaks down the glue in between the cells of the gut. So it makes the gut leaky. And when gluten and casein gets in, then other bad stuff, other toxins can get in, heavy metals and chemicals, uh, which was supposed to come up in your poop, now gets reabsorbed back into your body. And if you've got a leaky gut, usually you've got a leaky brain, this gluten and casein then goes to the receptors in your brain. And you've got these two classic receptors, they're opioid receptors, they're called gluteomorphoid receptors and caseomorphoid receptors. And it's like when the gluten and casein molecules attach to them, your kid's like on a high. He or she is like on what? Morphine or drugs because they're all pet receptors. So that's when they become hyper, they can't concentrate and they're just in their own world. So if you can do that for, I'll just give them, do it at least for six to eight weeks. It has to be 100%. So it can't be Oh, uh, she doesn't have pasta, but, you know, she goes to a birthday party, she'll have some cake. No, if you really want to see changes, try to cook your own meals, know what's going into your kid's food, and say two weeks down the line, you're doing it perfectly, and then she gets invited to a birthday party, and, oh, just have a bit of cake. Those first two weeks do not count. It has to be eight weeks of 100%. Yeah, not easy, hard. If people don't have enough money to do all the testing, if they just start with that, what yep. changes can you see? If they can be really strict for those eight weeks, what changes have you seen personally and also with your patients if people can stick to that diet? Remember I said there's five things I like to eliminate. So the top, those first two, usually if they do it really properly, maybe about 80% do see changes. So they get uh, they have more energy, like they get less tired, they, are, they can concentrate better. And sometimes the patients will come back and I say, so do you want to keep going? And they say, oh no, the diet's just done wonders. That's all they needed. And I'm like, oh my God, that's really good. But some kids need more. The third pet peeve would be sugar. I find sugar does a lot of things. And then the fourth and fifth, which is not a major thing so much. And that's when we go into more detail. It's like, soy and corn because they are GMO and some kids, their guts just can't stand genetically modified stuff. So you start with the dairy and the gluten yeah. and the sugar? Yeah. yeah. And when, when do you bring in the others? 
uh, later on if we don't see changes. We have to have this caveat. Say you've done eight weeks and mom and dad comes and say, no, we haven't seen any change and we're doing it 100%, then maybe it's not the gluten and there is. It happens in some kids. That's not their problem. Then we go deeper. Then we look at the gut. We look at their nutrient deficiencies. I see a lot of problems with iron, vitamin D, just basic things that sometimes we don't think about. So what are some of the common nutrient deficiencies? You said iron, vitamin D. What about zinc and magnesium? Definitely. Uh, zinc. So some of these kids come and they're very picky eaters. So first of all, that's hard if you're going to eliminate gluten and dairy. And all they eat are like this yellow, white and brown foods. So normally, you know, the things that they crave foremost, it's probably the things that they shouldn't be eating. Like it's not good for them. So if that happens um, and they're picky eaters, one of the main causes is zinc deficiency. Uh, low zinc affects your taste buds. So sometimes I say, okay, don't do all this elimination stuff. Just work on the zinc first. Some kids don't like supplements. You can get compounded transdermal zinc, like a cream. And then it's amazing how their taste buds get better and then they're willing to try other types of food. So the thing, magnesium is good for calming. Magnesium trionate is good for the brain. If it's more sleep and just anxiety, then magnesium like citrate or biglycinate is good. So that's two, zinc, E, iron, and magnesium. Oh, and the good fats, the omega-3s. I find that like uh, a lot of these kids have inflammation, especially in their brain. So the omega-3s are really good for that. What are the common tests that you might use if people aren't finding a you know, resolution with the dietary things and maybe some supplements? What are the common tests that you, you might order? Most of the tests that Medicare covers, which we would do up front, would be the blood test, except for zinc, copper. If they're anxious, usually the copper is high. So um, everything else should be covered. Then I go into... My favorite pool test, that's a quite an expensive test. Say if they're doing the diet but it's not working, then we look at the microbiome, the balance between the good bacteria and the bad, the yeast, the parasites, the viruses in your gut. And we look at improving that. Because sometimes we are just it's just an imbalance because we're not feeding enough of the foods that the good bacteria need to live with. And what about do you ever do the oat? Yep. That has a lot of information. So it depends on what, how the kids present, what information are you looking for, what have you tried and what's working and not working. So the old test, I like it because the old test is slightly cheaper than the pool test. And if you're just looking at, if you think it's they crave sugar and look, you're looking for yeast, then the old test can test for metabolites, the breakdown of yeast or mold in the urine less invasive than the blood test. Um, it can look at some bacteria like Clostridium. Uh, it just says that there's metabolized breakdowns of this bacteria, but you still need to do the pool test to confirm. It looks at mitochondrial function. That's Mitochondria is like your energy factory. It happens in most cells, and these kids sometimes can present as being hyperactive or tired and sometimes you wonder whether it's a mitochondrial dysfunction or floppy, like they can't ride a bicycle, is it because they just can't coordinate 
their muscles or is it their muscles fatigue easily? So that's the old test. What else can you you can get breakdowns of their happy hormones, serotonin, their stress hormones, adrenaline. We can look at the breakdown if they're eating or not eating properly. Are they breaking down fats properly, proteins properly, and the B12. B12 in blood tests are not accurate because it's levels in the blood. You want to see what B12 is doing at the cellular level. So the old test has a good test called the MMA and it represents the breakdown of B12. And what about, you mentioned copper. I find that quite widespread in the people I see. So what, what about you? Do you find that to be a common toxicity? Yes. So copper is good in little amounts. Like it need, you need copper to make like new blood vessels. But copper in high amounts, you can get it from swimming pools. So a lot of the kids go swimming. Copper is the main cofactor that converts dopamine, which is your motivating hormone to non-adrenaline. So if these kids are stressed, lots of anxiety, that's what copper does. It converts dopamine to non-adrenaline. Um, and copper, to me, is like a seesaw with zinc. So most of these kids have low zinc and high copper. And one of the first things we do when we find that is just to bring the zinc up and then the copper will slowly come down. Because if you bring down copper too fast, like you bring up copper too fast from your body, you get this thing called like a copper dumping syndrome. They'll get more anxious and the parents won't like you. So this, the serum test for copper, is that um, is that accurate? Do you do ceruleoplasmin as well? Yeah, because then there's a... a so serum plasma, uh, copper is just copper in the blood and then ceruleoplasmin is actually like the bus, the protein that brings the copper everywhere and that's like bound that's copper that's bound to protein and it doesn't act on the cells and then based on this too there's a formula that i do to calculate what's free copper the actual copper that's acting on the cell naturopathically Brittany darling starts by taking a thorough history for both the child and the parents and makes contact with their pediatrician or gp and then starts to address individual symptoms so Obviously, autism is a spectrum. So every child is going to present with a different group of um, symptoms. So it really depends on what the family would like to work on first. Sometimes we'll do dietary stuff first, but quite often, you know, we need to do supplementation to improve that appetite as well. So like it's completely, it's different for every case. Some um, clients, we're literally just working on improving that constipation or we're just working on improving sleep. It's whatever, but I like to do no more than three things at a time. So if we're, you know, transitioning from Fruit Loops in the morning and we're taking some zinc drops at night and perhaps there's one other thing, that's, that's enough because you don't want them to A, be non-compliant and B, for it to add to that overall load of stress for the family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what about in terms of causation? Like um, what do you, do you find any, any cause stands out above any other? I think iron deficiency is probably one of the key things. Zinc also, although I do wonder how reliable our um, serum or plasma zinc testing is in terms of body stores, but I do like to use it as an indicator of, of dietary intake or, you know, that acute dietary intake. I think heavy metals as well um, is a big one, certainly mercury and lead as well. I don't commonly see lead levels 
elevated. But we know that iron deficiency is a subsequent um, or even symptom of lead toxicity. And I mean, we we are very fortunate in Australia. Lead isn't so much as an of an issue as what it is in, say, Flint, USA, where I think their autism rates are just skyrocketing because of that that lead that industrial lead toxicity that's in their water. I don't so much see a lot of glycosate issues, although we do focus on reducing those high glycosate foods. So things like you know the wheat, making sure if they are going to have gluten containing products that they are organic just to reduce that overall glycosate load. And sometimes I see quite a few mitochondrial dysfunction. And I, interestingly, I haven't been able to find any data on this or any, anything to back this up, but I do, especially the, the laziness of chewing, I do see a link between that and mitochondrial dysfunction. Some kids really don't like meat because they're literally just too lazy to chew through it. So they'll have things like sausages or meatballs or things that fall apart, but give them a steak or a lamb cutlet and they're just not that keen on eating it. So you've obviously found supplementing mitochondria and nutrients improves the, their ability to chew. And in how many cases? So only a handful of cases, not many, but that's just my little quirky hypothesis. <laughs> and when it comes to um, heavy metal exposure, like even your son, you said he had high levels of mercury. How do you deal with that in clinic? Do you use apple pectin or charcoal? How do you how do you deal with that? Step one is like avoidance of um, fish uh, for a period of time. And it, I find it naturally comes down with time. Basically, time is step number one. Improving clearance from the bowels is absolutely, you know, step number two, because if you're not clearing from your bowels and you're not clearing your heavy metals and other toxins as well, sweating is also a great one. So I'm not very heavy. You probably know I'm not very heavy handed with my pediatric clients. It's really simple things. So sweating, whether that's an infrared sauna, if they're a little bit older um, on a really low temperature, there are some protocols that you can find around that or even just exercise. So running and sweating outside, promoting that natural detoxification process. And then sometimes I'll do things and adjunct like N-acetylcysteine or uh, potentially some glutathione. If I'm seeing red blood cell um, selenium quite low, I may supplement with selenium or even just a couple of Brazil nuts. But it is individual and it does depend how high that mercury is as well. What did you do for your own son? So it, time and um, supporting clearance from the bowels, essentially. So it, it did come down. It almost went to zero after completely avoiding um, seafood for about a year, 18 months. As far as testing goes, Brittany Darling prioritises the nutrigenomic profile followed by the gut microbiome testing to rule out clostridia and other parasitic infections. You've given me a few lots of gems along the way through our discussion, but any other kind of out-of-the-box treatments that you employ in your clinic with these kids? So one thing I'm watching at the moment, and I haven't actually employed it yet um, clinically, is sulfurethane. I don't know if you've seen the research on ASD and sulfurethane, so from, say, broccoli sprouts or broccoli seed. I think the research is quite promising, although it's been done in quite a small sample size. So there's a randomised control trial that um, was published, I think, in 2018, and it basically showed improvements of all most elements of ASD, so um, socialisation, um, language, 
Um, so I think that research is quite promising and I am watching that. Obviously, broccoli or sulfurethane could be potentially quite an easy thing to incorporate into our treatment protocols. The dosages were quite specific. So it was an age and weight-based dose that they used as, of the sulfurethane. Um, and interestingly, there was a subsequent study that looked at urinary metabolites in a group of ASD children who were given sulfurethane and then they tested their urinary metabolites before and after the study. Um, that wasn't randomised control, but it was an open label study. Basically, it was subsequent to the, that initial um, randomised control trial because the randomised control trial didn't check urinary metabolites. They were just doing measurements of um, ASD symptoms. So I think that's one to watch. What about, you know, you're obviously treating the child, but you mentioned right in the beginning how stressful it can be around before diagnosis, diagnosis, and then dealing with the every day of this. So do you find that you're also helping the family or the parents? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the dietary stuff that we do is family-based because there's no point in just doing the child or the ASD child's diet. Everyone needs to be eating the same stuff. Um, and that's certainly part of it. But, you know, I am known to sort of chase the mother out of the consult rooms holding, a, you know, a bottle of ashwagandha. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, certainly that stress and adrenal support for the parents um, is key as well. Yeah, and that comes in many shapes and forms. That can be, you know, recommending a great meditation teacher or, a, you know, a great local yoga class or just basically telling that mother that you need to fill up your cup so you're, you know, in a good place to handle everything and, you know, look after your children and be there, be there for them. Dr Ismail agrees that supporting families, particularly the mums, is an important part of the job when helping children with ASD. She reflects on the last 22 years with her own children. Wow, where do I start? Um, maybe first it was denial. It was hard to accept. And then once you accept it, sometimes you feel like you fail as a mom. I always have that guilty mom syndrome, like, oh my God, it was my silver amalgams. I had 14 uh, silver amalgams in my teeth. They're all mercury. We know that mercury can still evaporate and it stores in your fat and where's the fat in bone, long bone in your brain. So there was that guilt. And then it's like, oh my God, does she have a future? Because now she's diagnosed with this. Is that it? Is that her that lifelong life sentence, right? So we go through all that emotions. And then you, you want to do everything for this kid. And then you become overwhelmed and fatigued. So that's my other passion. I work a lot with moms who get busy. They're working. Now they have to take care of the kids. And then they forget to take care of themselves. And a lot of these moms present with fatigue. But that's like my favorite thing because you got to take care of the parents, you know, how is the parent going to take care of the kids? So I went through that myself, like the hard way. Yeah. Because then I became like burnt out and then like we stopped everything for a while. Um, she went back on her normal diet and then we were like, oh no, it's causing her to regress. So we knew we had to keep going on, but at the same time, have some time for ourselves. For Dr Ismail, her children's diagnoses changed the course of her career. For Brittany Darling, it changed her perspective. Yeah, look, I couldn't be more proud of him. I think the turning point for me was, you know, post-diagnosis, probably a couple of years in where I kind of had this sudden realisation that, 
you know, we're not just dealing with this boy with ASD. He's still my son. I still love him. He's still adorable. And he actually has all these amazing qualities and quirks. And my husband and I both um, support all his special interests and, and we actually embrace his quirkiness. I think the world would be a very boring place if everyone was very, you know, <laughs> I think we need that element of neurodiversity. And he's actually taught me so many things. He is such a out-of-the-box thinker. And there's been a few things that he sort of said where I've gone, actually, yeah, why is it that way? Why isn't it the other way? Like I've never even thought of it, you know. He just has a completely different perspective on things um, and an incredible sense of humour. So we we adore him and I think special children come to those who need it the most and I truly believe that he is what I needed. Yeah, and he certainly made me a better person for it and a better practitioner. (laughs) In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we'll hear again from Dr. Eilina Ismail. Melbourne naturopath Keone Moore talks about her approach to ADHD and integrative GP Dr. Frank Golick will shock and surprise you with some of the behaviours he sees in clinic. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.